1 Corinthians 4, please, in your Bibles. Last week, we were not in the book of Corinthians. We finished our series in John, so it was a two-part sermon, as you recall. We'll pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this week. Last time we were together, we ended in uh, the very end of chapter 3. So I'd like us to do a little bit of review as we begin, and as we do so, if you would like an outline for this morning's service, Evan will have those outlines. Please just raise your hand. He'll be sure to get one to you. And that might help you follow along. It has this evening's service on it as well. Ezekiel book sermon. I remind you that this evening we start in Ezekiel. It's going to be an exciting series. Uh, It's going to be a um, challenging series for us. So I encourage you to be here and uh, to be ready to learn a great number of things from the book of Ezekiel. Recall with me what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 3. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we are. We saw six warnings two weeks ago. Six warnings that Paul gave to ministers regarding the ministry of the Word of God in the church. He told them, ministers, don't forsake the church's one foundation. Warning, don't forsake the church's one foundation. He said, ministers, don't ignore what you build upon that foundation. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Don't forsake that. Don't forsake what you build upon it because the wood, hay, and stubble or the gold, silver, and precious stones matters. Then he said, ministers, don't forget that you will be judged the judgment upon your ministry, that one day that gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble will pass through the fire of God's judgment and you will be accountable. Ministers, don't overlook the destruction of the destroyer. That if you have taken part in destroying the work of God, destroying the building of God, the church of God, then you can rest assured that God will destroy you. Ministers, don't allow worldly wisdom to guide the church, was the fifth warning. That if you allow worldly wisdom to come into the church and to dictate the church's direction and to guide the church in the way it should go, and you are applying worldly wisdom in order to run the church and to uh, direct the church, then you're building up wood, hay, and stubble. And then finally, he warned the church. He said, church, don't glory in the ministry of men. Glory in God. So it was a final call that said, church, remember that you're not loyal to the minister, you're loyal to the Word of God. You're loyal to the message. And as we would expect, Paul is simply continuing his thought process in chapter 4. There are some places in the Scriptures where I wish there wasn't a chapter break. And this would be one of those places. I feel like the chapter break can break up our thought process sometimes. It can actually... Um, cause us to think that there, there's a division there. And there isn't always a division. After all, these were letters. These were uh, a, a running thought process in these letters. And if you were to get a letter from your brother or sister or child and you were to read that letter and they had broken that letter into chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, you would still expect there to be a contiguous thought through the letter, and it would benefit you to read the letter as a whole. And so we must understand what came before in order to understand what we're dealing with now in chapter 4. 
we've reviewed a little bit of what came before in chapter 3. And I'd like us to even go a bit farther out and get a broad overview of what is happening in the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth had begun to glorify men. Glorying in the teachings and examples of men rather than in that of the word of God. The leaders of the church were carrying the worldly wisdom of human loyalties and personal superiorities and they were bringing that worldly wisdom into the church. And so they began to take sides, saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. The deeper problem, though, this was a symptom. When you see a person with a runny nose, you don't say, oh, that person caught a runny nose. You say, oh, that person caught a cold. A runny nose is a symptom of a cause, of a deeper cause. You can treat the runny nose, but that's not necessarily going to cure the cause. It's just going to cure the symptoms. So too, this carnality, this division in the church was a symptom of a deeper cause. The deeper problem was carnality. Worldly wisdom. The people were thinking with a mind of human reasoning and philosophy rather than with the mind of Christ. They were focused on what they perceived and what they understood based upon their reasoning rather than going to the Word of God, going to the example of Jesus Christ and standing upon Him. Now, Paul, as he writes, is not simply an apostle rebuking the church. To him, this was far more important than simply a church leader rebuking the church because these men were using the distinctives of his ministry among them. The time that he spent among them, they were using him as a part of their division. They were dividing the church in the name of Paul. They were dividing the church in the name of Apollos. They were dividing the church in the name of Cephas, or the Apostle Peter. That's who Cephas is. They were dividing the church. And so, this had to stop. Paul had to stop this, lest the testimony of Jesus Christ be further damaged in the, in the city of Corinth. And so Paul gave his generalized warnings in chapter 3 to the ministers, causing them to take heed of how they built up the church of God, because God will judge them for it one day. Paul also warns the church that if they see any man using worldly wisdom to build the church, that they needed to note that man, that they needed to avoid that man, that they needed to avoid his ministry and reject his ministry and remain loyal to the Word of God. And as Paul steps into chapter 4, the discussion becomes a little more personal. He uses himself and Apollos as examples of how the church must stay balanced and must be spiritual as they approach God's Word and not carnal. And so we're going to look at these more specific and more personal warnings. He, Paul is still speaking in regard to ministers and ministry. And so we're going to see three lessons today in regard to ministry. And this is ministry in whatever capacity. I told you last time as we applied the truth to ministers, we also applied that truth to those of you who have various ministries. Whether you're a parent, or whether you are a leader in a church, or whether you are a leader in your community, or whether you are a mentor to other believers, a discipler. And so we're going to see the same thing today. Lessons about ministry. And lessons that will help us as a church, give us perspective as a church, give us understanding as a church, but also as individuals, 
in the various ministries and capacities that we have, whether small or great. So let's look at these three lessons this morning. In in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 4, we see the first lesson, that ministry is about faithfulness, not about growth. Ministry is about faithfulness, not about growth. Paul's conclusion in 1 Corinthians 3.21 was this, Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Now, this is the thought process that we should carry into 1 Corinthians 4. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The word account here is a Greek word that means to count up or to compute or to sum. It's an accounting term. To determine might be a way that we call it. Paul calls upon the men of the church to account for or to sum up his ministry or their ministry, the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Apollos. He says, let a man account of our ministry among you. Let a man sum it up. Let a man distinguish it. And he says this, let it, let our ministry, let our ministry among you be in this context, that we were loyal that we were faithful ministers of the Word of God. That we were loyal not to worldly wisdom, but to the message of Christ in the Gospel. And notice Paul states how they should account for this ministry. They should account for the ministry as ministers of Christ and as stewards of the mystery of God. They didn't come preaching the doctrines of worldly wisdom They came preaching the truth of God's Word. They were ministers of Christ. They were stewards of God's mystery. And so we come across this term, mystery. What does it mean when God speaks of the mystery, or when Paul speaks of the mystery of God? What is this mystery? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says this, Having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself, And here he states what the mystery is. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. So Paul states that the mystery is the gathering together of God's people. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 and 7. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of grace of, of God, which is given to me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote to form few words, whereby, when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And here it is, here's the mystery, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. He says, Where I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. So we see again that he defines the mystery as the gathering of all people groups, of Gentiles and Jews, together into one body called the church, the church of God. He would state something similar in Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. He says, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, as Paul says that he has been made a steward of the mystery of God, the mystery that he's speaking of here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Paul is one of the men that has been made responsible to spread the foundation of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the uttermost part of the earth. Now we know that Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says that I am called not to take the gospel to those that have heard, but to those who have not heard. He is called to be that evangelist, the one that shares the good news with those who have never heard. So that's what Paul is speaking of when he speaks of the mysteries of the gospel. Paul was not a steward of sign gifts. Paul was not a steward of theological perspectives. Paul was not a steward of a denomination. He was not a steward of a movement. He was a steward of the revealed will of God through the gospel. The mystery of the church. All men from every tribe and nation called to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby to become children of the living God. The church is called by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the pillar and the ground of truth. The church has no room for anything outside of this description. The church does not have any room for men that are seeking to exalt themselves. The church does not have any room for men that are seeking wealth and prosperity. The church does not have any room for those who would separate and who would divide along lines of worldly wisdom, along lines of false claims of superiority and spurious assumptions of secret knowledge and higher callings. That is not the church. The church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the pillar and the very ground of the truth in this age. We are called to be firm. We are called to be unwavering in our commitment to the Word of God and the truths found therein, and that is the church. Now this creates a problem for the church as we would understand it today, as it, was, as it is labeled today in the broader context. See, because the church as a whole, the Western church as we might call it, isn't really standing for the truth anymore. all the way down to the very foundation, to the very roots of the truth, which is rooted in the Word of God, the church has undermined its authority. The church is reinterpreting the Word of God all the time. I had a conversation last night with a man, and we were talking about this. How is it that for generations the church has recognized certain sins in Scripture? Sodomy. Abortion. And now all of a sudden, the church determines that we were wrong. The Bible doesn't really say that. And we twist the Scriptures and we reinterpret the Scriptures and we, we take doctrines and we distort them in order that people can feel good about themselves. And the church has given up the very truth that God has called upon it to proclaim and to stand upon. We've twisted it. And I say we, I say the church, not God's true church, may I say. What, what, what's called the Western church has twisted it. And there are men in the pulpits who are using worldly wisdom and applying worldly wisdom to all of these things. Well, you know, science is starting to tell us that sodomy is a, gem a genetic trait. So, 
that means we can't preach against it because we're preaching against people's genes. Well, if the Bible says it's sin, then it, we know it's not a genetic trait. Because the Bible is the pillar and the ground of truth. The church is the pillar and the ground of truth. We stand upon the truth of God's Word against the worldly wisdom. Against that which the world would call wisdom. So the Western church has a problem. And that problem goes all the way down to their willingness to change the scriptures itself. The willingness to allow the scriptures to be distorted and reinterpreted. A willingness to even allow all the way back to the Greek text as we think about the texts that are used to interpret the Bible. A willingness to allow that Greek text to be placed in the hands of scholars and philosophers and worldly thinkers to be twisted and to be contorted and something that ought not be. Paul says, Church of Corinth, reckon us to be ministers of God's Word, not ministers of our own ideas. Reckon us to be men that will stand upon the truths of the Scripture and not stand upon man's fickle ideas and whims. But it's not enough just to be given stewardship, is it? It's never enough just to be given responsibility if that responsibility is not faithfully performed. There's a man in this church who is responsible every week to make sure that the sound is set up for our church services. Now, if I were to come to him every week and I were to ask him to recite for me verbatim, step by step, every single responsibility that he had. And he went through and he said, I have to turn this on, I have to turn that on, and I have to turn this on, and I have to test this, and I have to check this, and I have to make sure that the volumes are right. I have to do all this. I said, that's great. You've got it. And then every week, he didn't do it. Every week, the, the, no, nothing got recorded. The volume was all off. Every week, it was done. It was not done properly. It wouldn't make a difference that he was a steward that he was placed in responsibility if he wasn't being a good steward, if he wasn't carrying out his responsibility, the fact that he had the responsibility would be worthless. Well, so it is as ministers of Jesus Christ. It is important, whether you are a pastor or a deacon or a father or a discipler, that you not only know your authority and know your responsibility before God, but that you faithfully perform those responsibilities. Every Sunday across this nation, there are men who get in this pulpit and they know what their responsibility is, but they don't. They aren't faithful stewards of that responsibility. They have assumed the responsibility of teaching and preaching God's Word, but they are not being faithful to their calling. Paul says, let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and as stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required, it is demanded, it is expected in stewards that a man be found faithful. Paul says that he has been called to be a minister of the truth and that as the steward of truth, he is required to be found faithful to his calling. So it is with us. God has not called us to tickle ears. 
God has not called us to make people happy. God has not called us to get a big church. God has not called us to these things. Now, if people leave the church happy, that's probably a good thing, generally speaking. If we have all of these seats filled, that would be a wonderful thing, generally speaking. But that's not what God has called us to. That's not what God calls ministers unto. That's not what God calls ministries unto. He calls us unto faithfulness in the stewardship that He's given to us. Ministry is about faithfulness. Second lesson, ministry is about the praise of God, not the praise of man. Ministry is about the praise of God, not the praise of man. Look with me in verses 3 through 5. But with me, he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know that nothing by, for, excuse me, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. There's something very unique about how verse 3 is translated in the King James Bible. We see a derivative of the word judge come up three times. Judged, judgment, and judge. What's interesting, though, is that the first and third instances are the same word in the Greek. They're the word that we would expect. It's the word meaning to scrutinize or to investigate. It's a very small thing, Paul says, that I be scrutinized or investigated of you. But that second word, the word translated judgment, is actually a very different Greek word. It's the word in the Greek for the word day, as in a 24-hour day. What Paul is saying then, if we were to read this literally, is this. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be um, judged or that I should be scrutinized of you or of any man's day. Yea, I scrutinize not mine own self. Paul is saying that it is really of little concern to him whether any man, what any man thinks of the way he conducts his ministry. Whether he is assessed by the Corinthian church or in any man's day. Whether now or a thousand years later, Paul says, it really doesn't matter to me what they thought of my ministry in any time or in any place. But he goes on to say in verse 4 that though he, um, it doesn't matter to him if he's judged of any man. He says, I know nothing by myself. In other words, I don't know of anything in my ministry that's wrong. He says, I have not come across anything in my ministry that I can pinpoint and say, this is a real problem. This is rooted in worldly wisdom. He says, but you know, I'm not justified in even my own understanding of my ministry. He says, as, as I'm living this earth, the Corinthian church, you don't justify my ministry. You don't tell me how good I'm doing as a minister. And he says, even though there's nothing in my mind, there's nothing that I know of whereby as I've ministered to the churches, I've done something wrong. I can't think of anything. He says, even my inability to know whether I've done something wrong isn't what's going to set the standard for my ministry. He says, the one that judges me is God. God is the one that judges the effectiveness of my ministry. Not me, not you. Paul is saying this, Every man in Corinth has an opinion about Paul's teaching, about Paul's ministry, about his effectiveness, about his faithfulness to the Word of God. And he says those opinions don't matter. Paul says, I have my own opinion 
about my ministry, about my effectiveness, about my faithfulness to God. And to be quite honest, Paul says, even my opinion doesn't matter. Because one day, Paul says, I'm going to stand before God. And before God will be gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And the only thing that matters is the stuff that comes out on the other side of God's judgment. So Paul says, Therefore judge nothing before the time, till the Lord come who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. In context to ministry, Paul is saying judge nothing before the time. Now, question. Does this mean that we as a church, and myself as a minister, have no right or authority to judge the ministry of another man? Does that mean that when I stand behind this pulpit and I point out the ministries of men who are false teachers, whose ministries are not leading people in the right direction, that I am wrong in doing that? No. That's not what Paul is saying here. Let's remember the context within which Paul is speaking. Paul is not speaking about judging the content of a ministry. He is speaking about judging the spiritual effectiveness of a ministry. Paul is not saying that we can't judge a ministry's content. He's saying we cannot judge a ministry's spiritual effectiveness. Let me illustrate. The megachurch movement is a big thing right now in America. People, thousands of people flock to these huge churches, satellite churches, television ministries, everything. Now, these ministries are without a doubt physically successful. A very large number of people come through their doors, listen to these messages, and leave. A very large number of people flock to these buildings and to these satellite churches. There's no doubt that these are physically successful ministries. Ministries across the country look at these megachurches and they desire to duplicate them in their own churches because they see them as successful. Now, we can recognize physical success. But can we say, is there a one-to-one correlation between the physical success of a ministry and the spiritual effectiveness of a ministry? There's not. The size of your ministry does not gauge how effective it is spiritually. We talked about that two weeks ago. It's not about quantity, it's about quality. Now, can we say that because a church has several thousand people that they are not spiritually effective? No. We don't have the right to judge the spiritual effectiveness of their ministry. Paul says, that's not, it's it's a small thing, he says, if you would seek to judge how spiritually effective my ministry is. He says, it's a small thing if I try to judge how spiritually effective my ministry is. But he says this, I am required as a steward to be found faithful. And I am being faithful to the ministry that God has given me to the best of my ability. Now, can we judge the spiritual output of a ministry. The fruit. If a man is standing up week in and week out and he's saying, all roads lead to heaven and it doesn't matter whether you come through Jesus Christ or Buddha or Muhammad or whoever, all roads get you to heaven. Well, we can't judge 
the spiritual effectiveness, but we can judge the fruit. We can say that man is indeed preaching error because the scriptures clearly state that there is no salvation save in Jesus Christ alone. Do you understand the difference? So now, as we think about this continued illustration of the megachurch, churches look at these megachurches and they see these big churches and they say, ah, success. So they try to duplicate it in their own churches. They begin to study these churches. They begin to study its doctrines. They begin to study its methods. They begin to study its messages, what it says, what it leaves out to determine how they can grow in size and become a megachurch too. Often it works. But see, what they are doing here is they are judging the spiritual effectiveness of a ministry by the physical effectiveness of getting people in. And so they are no longer being loyal to the Word of God. They're being loyal to the ministry. They're being loyal to the method. And they're seeking to build their church not by building up the Word of God, but by building up a method. By building up a ministry. So now everyone is judging the ministry. It's successful because of this. It's successful because of that. It's a successful ministry because of our numbers. It's a successful ministry because of what we've done. Well, success in any ministry is rooted in the Holy Spirit's work. Not because of how it looks or because of how many people it has. Will God be pleased if we model our success after numbers or after programs? No. God will be pleased when the Word of God is effectively taught. And this is the warning that Paul states. That we would judge nothing before the time. We can look at a teacher or the teaching of a man and judge its accuracy according to the Word of God. We can judge whether it is in line with the Word of God or not. This is appropriate. This is expected. This is uh, what we ought to do. We have every authority to state whether a minister is doing right or wrong according to sound doctrine, whether his actions, whether his fruit, whether his words are in line with the Word of God. But we have no business imposing a concept of spiritual success or spiritual failure on a ministry. And by application... What Paul is trying to say is that we have no business becoming loyal to a minister because of his perceived spirituality. We are loyal to the Word of God. You do not become, you do not see Pastor Wickler on Sunday and say, that man is a godly spiritual man and follow Pastor Wickler whithersoever he would go. You assess the accuracy of my ministry according to the Word of God. You can come up and say, Hey, Pastor, heard your sermon on Sunday and you know I, I'm a little bit concerned about what you said here. That doesn't quite sound right. And you open the Scriptures and you show me the places where uh, what I said contradicted the Word of God and you correct me because you recognize that there was error and, and, and respect as you're intended to do uh, according to the Word of God uh, to the elders of the church and those sorts of things. But no man, including myself, has the ability to judge the fruit, the spiritual effectiveness, as it were, excuse me, not the fruit, the spiritual effectiveness of what's going on here. We cannot judge that before the time. 
as Paul noted. Ministry is about faithfulness, not growth. Ministry is about the praise of God, not the praise of man. Third and finally, ministry is about what we have been given, not what we have to offer. Ministry is about what we have been given, not what we have to offer. Look at me in verses 6 and 7. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from one another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? As if thou hast not received it. Paul states that he has transferred these concepts of accountability over to himself and to Apollos as examples in order that they would learn not to elevate men. By extension, as they learn not to elevate men, they will learn not to elevate themselves above one another. See, they were taking sides and they were claiming superiority in the church. I'm of Paul. I follow these charismatic teachings, the sign gifts that Paul showed us when he came in the spirit of power. Therefore, I'm more godly than you, other people in the church who don't have sign gifts. I am of Apollos. Apollos was an intellectual. And he came and he showed us all of the doctrine and he, he connected the New Testament concepts and the Old Testament concepts so beautifully and you don't quite have the intellect that I have so I'm more spiritual than you others in the church. I'm of Cephas, a man that is still submitting himself to the expectations of the law of God, who's still um, conforming himself to some of those elements of, of the law. God works through His people Israel. I'm keeping these elements of the law and you aren't. Therefore, I'm more spiritual than you. Paul says, look, take a lesson. He says, I am even using myself and Apollos as an example here. That you should not elevate us above that which we are as faithful stewards of the Word of God in order that you would understand that you have no means, any authority to elevate yourself above another Christian. To call yourself more spiritual because the spiritual effectiveness will be judged at the time. The day where you stand before God, that's where your spiritual effectiveness will be judged. You have no authority to judge your spiritual effectiveness in comparison to others in this life. They need to learn that spirituality is not measured by a man's physical success or by the gifts that God has given to him, but by the heart motive that he has and the faithfulness to God that he performs according to the stewardship that God has given to him. So Paul asks them in verse 7, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Here is the problem with elevating men in spiritual matters. Let's say that over the next year, Legacy Baptist Church grows to have 500 members. By this time next year, we are a church of 500. Somehow we all fit in here, I guess. We've got 500 people in this church. We get huge. We eventually get our own building. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, it's everything that we want it to be. Now, if we're measuring a man's spirituality based upon physical success, then all of a sudden, I have become an exceedingly successful minister, right? 
I have become a successful pastor. People come because I'm a good teacher. Our church is friendly. We are good at giving. We're servants of the people or whatever it might be. People come because of what we are. Now let's say we go the other way. This time next year or in six months, I'm preaching and my two little girls are the only ones sitting here. Even my wife is downstairs. My two little girls are the only ones listening. That's it. Everyone else is gone. Everyone else is left. Even, you know, cars on this side, Alethea on this side, as I'm talking about the good and I'm talking about the bad, whatever it might be, it, it's, it's, it's not real pretty. Suddenly, all, all of a sudden, I'm no longer a successful minister, right? Because there's only two people left in the church. See, but the problem is, the church of God does not hinge upon what we are, it hinges upon what we have been given. If your pastor has any ability to teach, it's because God has given him that ability. If you have any heart for giving, it's because God has given you that heart for giving. If you have any heart for service, it is because God has given you that heart for service. If you have any musical ability, it is because God has given you that musical ability. Now, this does not discount our responsibility. If I have a gift of teaching, and I sit around all week watching TV and eating potato chips, and then come in on Sunday and expect to expound upon the Word of God, well, I might be able to say some pretty interesting things, but it's not going to be proper exposition of the Word of God. If you have musical ability, but you never practice your instrument, and you never use that musical ability, well, then you're not going to be a good steward of the gift that God has given to you, and you're not going to be able to be, do well at your gifts. Each one of us is responsible to respond in obedience to the Word of God and give sacrificially if we are to become a giving church. But it is God that has given us the grace to be a giving church if God has called us to be a giving church. It is God that has given us the grace to be what God has called us to be. And so, if we have 500 people in here at the end of the next six months, it is not that I'm a good minister, it is that God has given us the grace. As long as I have been faithful to my call and faithful to the Word of God, well then perhaps God has seen me as a good minister. But you know, if we get 500 people in here because all of a sudden I decide to stop preaching the Bible or I start preaching the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or I start coming in with YouTube clips and talking about the YouTube clips instead of talking about the Word of God, well then our church might be successful, but God does not see me as a successful minister. If in six months' time I have been preaching faithfully the Word of God and everyone scatters in this church and it's just Carlos on one side and Alethea on the other side and I'm preaching to my daughters but I have indeed been faithful to the Word of God as He has called me to, well then our church may not be very successful but if that's what God has called me to, I've been a successful minister. This is what Paul is saying here. See, we get it in our minds that success comes from us. We get it in our minds that something good happens because we're so good. But God doesn't judge success that way. Success to God is faithfulness. Success to God is not numbers. Success to God is when God gets the praise. Success to, uh, to God is not when man gets the praise. 
Success to God is not about what I have to offer. It's about what I have been given. And so, all of a sudden, if we're judging by man's standards, those of you in this church who have the gift of giving and who know that you give more than others in the church because God has given you that gift, start to divide. You say, ah, why don't these people figure it out? Why can't they realize that they need to give more? This is giving to God here, people. And you start beginning to say, I'm more spiritual than you. You need to get your heart right with God and learn how to give. And the people with music ability say, why don't you other people want to minister to God through music? The Scriptures speak of music all the time and the ministry that we have to give to God through music. And look at you. I know you've got time in your week where you're sitting around watching television. Why aren't you practicing an instrument? Learn it! And all of a sudden, the musical ones become more spiritual in their own minds. And then there are others that say, I just don't understand why you don't get all this theology. I don't understand why you can't just take the time to understand a little bit of Greek here. I mean, honestly. Why can't you just take a course, learn Greek, so that you can understand all these things? Maybe get a little Latin in there so you can understand the terms. Therefore, I must be more spiritual than you. Because God has given me the grace to sit in front of a book and study for hours on end. See where it goes? Division through carnality. False superiorities. Claiming, I'm better than you. When, when Paul says, how dare you? When anything that you do have has been given to you by God. Any amount of intellect that you have to perceive the, the deep things of the Word of God, we know that the Gospel is simple and the, and the, the Word of God is, is clear, but there are indeed deep mysteries of the Word of God. And Paul says, anything that you've been given whereby you can understand these things has been given to you of God. It's a gift. It's not of you. Any ability that you have to pluck an instrument or to blow air through an instrument and make something beautiful on the other side has been given to you by God. It's not from you. And so who makes you to differ one from another? How are you, musically talented person, gifted by God, any different than the one who has been gifted by God to give 30% of his paycheck instead of just 10? Who are you, you who have been gifted by God with studying, to be any different or any better than the one who has been gifted by God with great mercy and compassion, thoughtfulness, thinking of others, always calling, always writing notes, always loving, always encouraging. Where have you differed? How are you different? What you have has been given to you by God. What she has has been given to her by God. What he has has been given to him by God. So what makes you any better? What makes you any different? What makes you more superior? Now, I trust that the lines have still been drawn in this sermon. We do divide along lines of doctrinal truth. If a person is preaching error, as we've mentioned, we, can't, we don't justify him. We call him out. If a person is being irresponsible, not being a part of the church as they ought to be, I'm not justifying you in sitting on the couch watching TV. That's not what I'm doing today. 
If you have gifts from God and you are not being a wise steward of those gifts, then you are indeed in the wrong. If you don't know what your gifts are, then you need to find out. And then you need to use those gifts for God. I'm not justifying your laziness today and the Word of God is not justifying your laziness. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We work for the praise of God, not the praise of men. There is nothing that has caused us to differ one from another. It's not about what you have, it's about what you've been given. And if we don't keep this in mind, then the church divides. Because we think that we're somehow more special than someone else. More spiritual than those that don't have the gifts we have. But you know what is special? The grace of God. What is special is that God has chosen not just to save us from our sins, but then to work us into a body called the church and to use us for His glory. What is special is that God has given you a place to serve. God has given you something to do. God has given you opportunities. God has given you talents. God has not simply said, okay, you're saved. Let's just take you to heaven. You've, you've epitomized the glory of God the moment you got saved. God didn't say that. God has given you the privilege of doing His work in this world. And not only has He given you the privilege of doing so, but He blesses you for it. Rewards are being laid up in heaven for the work that He's allowing you to do on His behalf. That is special. So as we close today, ministry is not about numbers, physical success. It's about faithfulness. Ministry is not about me finding glory in of myself. It's about God's glory. Ministry is not about what I have. It's about what I've been given. But may I encourage you as we finish here today that ministry is indeed an expectation. Those of you that are members of Legacy Baptist Church, next week will be our business meeting. Perhaps you've seen on the back table the itinerary. Perhaps you've picked one up already. On that business meeting, as we talk about some various aspects, there's going to be opportunities for you to get involved in a greater capacity in Legacy Baptist Church. Perhaps you say, I don't know where to serve. I don't know how to serve. Well, next week's going to be a good start for you. As you think about the truths that God has presented in His Word today about ministry, may I encourage you to prepare your heart to be willing to volunteer yourself for some ministry opportunities. Those of you that are not members of Legacy Baptist Church, may I encourage you and remind you that God wants you to be somewhere. God wants you to be active somewhere. If this is the place, then this needs to be the place. Get busy, become a part of us, and start serving. If this is not the place, then go find the place that God wants for you to be. Because you need to get busy and start serving. Because God has gifted you. God has gifted you. And it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. You're not going to be judged when you stand before God for how much talent you had. You're not going to be judged for how big or small this church gets. You will be judged for how you used the gifts that God gave you. How faithful you were to what God has gifted you with. 
May I encourage you this morning to be faithful to God's praise and to God's glory.